This meeting of the Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We thank our witnesses for being here. Uh, Nancy, as I understand it, is tied up in traffic and will be coming in in a few moments. So we're going to go ahead and get started. I know we have a vote a little bit later on. We want to make sure that uh, we get the full benefit of your testimony. But uh, I want to thank the members for being here. And uh, today's hearing is the second in a series of hearings examining the role of the United States in the Middle East. This hearing will focus on the immense humanitarian crisis emanating from the region, the images of hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children fleeing for safety should challenge every moral fiber within us. And uh, there's a people just like us that want only to be able to raise their families in dignity and cherish the same values and things that we all care about, and yet we watch them on television uh, in these desperate circumstances. We all know that the scale of this, we all know the scale of this tragedy, but it is, it is worth, again, outlining the numbers. In Syria, a country with a population of 22 million in 2011, more than 4.1 million have fled the country, and more than 7.6 million are displaced inside the country. So half of Syria's population um, is not at home not living in their hometowns, but in some other place. Some estimates put the number of deaths in Syria at over 300,000. I know that number, uh, people have different estimates. With the Assad regime responsible for over 100,000 civilian deaths. Uh, let me say that one more time. The Assad regime responsible for one, over 100,000 civilian deaths. In Iraq, 8.6 million are in need of humanitarian assistance and 3.5 two million uh, displaced. Solutions must address why people are fleeing. I look forward to hearing the views of our witnesses today. Nancy, welcome. You didn't miss anything, actually. But I believe that after four years of war, there is a perception that there is no light at the end of the tunnel. As Assad continues to barrel bomb his own people, the Russians and Iranians continue to ensure that he has the means to do it. More than one year after establishing a global coalition to counter ISIS, we learned that the main beneficiary, Iraq, has allowed Iran, Russia, and Syria to establish their own coalition within a coordination cell in Baghdad. It now appears that our administration is seriously debating some type of an accommodation with the Russians in order to fight ISIS. It's difficult to understand how working alongside the backers of Assad could in any way stem the flow of refugees who are fleeing the barrel bombs. It is important to remember that the war in Syria began with Assad, and he's still doing the same things today on a daily basis that he was doing at the time. And I do want to digress and say I know that David Miliband um, took a very opposing view to most of the Labor Party, uh, when he at one time served in the parliament, and felt that interaction uh, in, inside Syria should be taking place by, by Great Britain. Um, many of us felt the same way, and uh, as crass as it may sound, I think all of us, all of us, uh, today as we watch what is on television and see these refugees and the circumstances they're in, all of us are reaping what we sowed. We didn't get involved at a time when we could have made a difference. 
I hope our witnesses can help us understand the scale and effect of the humanitarian crisis and what steps the United States and others should be taken to mitigate it. But I would like to again stress that we cannot simply rely on humanitarianism alone in this crisis and that it is incumbent upon us to work towards realistic policies that would bring back the hope of a normal life to those in need. Thank you again for appearing before our committee and I look forward to your testimony. And with that, I'd like to turn to our distinguished ranking member. Well, Mr. Chairman, first uh, let me thank you for convening this hearing. You and I talked uh, uh, a while back as to what we can do. Uh, this committee uh, works in a bipartisan way in order to advance um, our foreign policy objectives, and I congratulate the chairman uh, for his leadership in that regard. We talked what we can do in regards to the uh, refugee crisis globally and recognizing that Syria uh, is an immediate concern. It's, it's a humanitarian crisis as well as a problem of a conflict that needs a solution. Uh, it's complicated, of course, by ISIS presence in, in Syria. So I want to thank you for the manner in which we were able to convene this hearing uh, and to see how the, the United States Senate, the Congress, uh, can advance uh, the goals of the United States in dealing with this international crisis and how we can take a look at our traditional tools and perhaps refine them, look at new ways that we can energize uh, the United States involvement and the international community to deal with the humanitarian crisis. And I would agree with you, uh, we also need to deal with the political underpinnings of why people have to flee their homes. Uh, for the first time since World War II, almost 60 million people have been forced from their homes and displaced in their own countries or forced to flee abroad. We are seeing more and more conflicts that do not end and result in exponential increases in humanitarian needs. The magnitude of the Syrian disaster is perhaps the most shocking. As the war enters its fifth year, the situation is increasingly des desperate for both the refugees and host countries like Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, and northern Ar Iraq. Because Syrians are finding it increasingly difficult to find safety, they are being forced to move further af afield. That is why so many are risking their lives to cross the Mediterranean. There are currently some 4 million Syrian refugees, plus another 7.6 million internally displaced Syrians, suffering and in need of humanitarian assistance. More and more families are forced to send their children to work or marry off their young daughters. It's hard to comprehend the impact of millions of refugees on Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey. The number of refugees in Lebanon would be equivalent, the percentage of their population, to the United States receiving 88 million new refugees. Uh, that's a shocking number uh, for, uh, for that country. Turkey has already spent $6 billion in direct assistance to refugees in its care. That's a huge part of the uh, Turkish economy. At the same time, we in the West, until very recently, have been reluctant to admit even the most vulnerable Syrian refugees. While contributing generously to humanitarian funding, the United States has only accepted about 1,500 Syrian refugees, although the White House recently announced it would admit 10,000 Syrians. We know that the Syrian humanitarian disaster, which has destabilized an entire region, is not the accidental byproduct of conflict. It is instead one result of the strategy pursued by the Assad regime. The United Nations Commission on, on, of Inquiry on Syria has documented that the Assad regime is using barrel bombs 
internationally engages in the indiscriminate bombardment of homes, hospitals, schools, water, and electrical facilities in order to terrorize the civilian population. As millions of families are displaced multiple times, and as the chairman pointed out, with the casualty numbers now approaching 300,000 Syrians that have been killed, uh, the number of people fleeing the country will only rise. Mr. Chairman, I agree with you. Uh, the ultimate solution here is for Assad to leave. Uh, we know that we need uh, to have uh, uh, Assad, and I believe he should leave for The Hague to be held accountable for his, uh, his uh, war crimes. Uh, so we need to work on a political solution. I know the president is in, is in New York today meeting with world leaders to talk about a political path forward. But in the meantime, we do have the humanitarian crisis and there is no end in sight to people trying to flee, as you said, uh, what everyone would want, a, a safe environment for their families. In Syria's neighbor next door, Iraq, the number of people requiring humanitarian assistance has grown to 8.2 million people. Three million have been forced from their homes. Half of the displaced are children. To the south, Yemen is on the brink of humanitarian catastrophe. That country was particularly vulnerable even before this conflict, and now civilians throughout the country are facing an alarming level of suffering and violence. An estimated 21 million people are affected, afflicted by war and require humanitarian assistance. 1.5 million people have been forced from their homes and are now living in empty schools or other public buildings or along highways. The global refugee trends are indeed alarming. The international assistance being provided is not keeping up with the scale of the problem. The United Nations have been able to raise only 38% of the 7.4 billion it says it needs to care for the Syrians. We need to ask ourselves hard questions about how we can increase the effectiveness of the assistance. And now protracted crises seem to be a new normal, with many refugees displaced on average 17 years. Let me just underscore that point. Our refugee program is aimed at looking at refugees as being a temporary and how do we get them back safely to their homes. That's what a refugee is, 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 was always thought to be. But if you're in some other place for 17 years, the chances of you going back to your native country is remote. In Syria, some of the communities don't even exist where the people have left. And many others have been transformed to such a point that it would not be safe any time in the near future for the Syrians to be able to return to their home environment. We need to rethink our, our refugee laws to recognize that a large number, in my understanding uh, that there's about 20 million refugees worldwide, a large number of those are not returning to their native countries. And the United States needs to look at a refugee policy that's sensitive to the new, the new norm, which is a large number, much larger than the caps that we have, would represent the U.S. capacity uh, to deal with the realities that people need to find new homes for their families. I believe strongly we need to use humanitarian and development dollars more skillfully so that we're providing durable and development-like solutions to chronic vulnerability. In closing, we must recognize that as these conflicts proliferate, no corner of the world will be left unaffected. We must recommit ourselves to work smarter and harder to assist the world's most vulnerable people. As we seek to win the hearts and minds in this region, our effort to provide real, tangible humanitarian assistance to people must be affected by this conflict will be more effective than sending more military assistance or more weapons into a conflict where there is no pathway for success. Our humanitarian engagement is a moral and political necessity, and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses as to how we can be more effective in dealing with the humanitarian crisis 
and hopefully ending uh, the way, uh, the causes of why people need to flee their homes. Thank you very much, and thanks for a lifetime of uh, effort ensuring people have appropriate human rights. Can I just add one thing, if I like, Mr. Chairman? Uh, most people might notice that our chairman, who is always even-tempered and always in a good mood, is particularly uh, proud today. He yeah. became a grandfather for the first time, and I know that our committee offers him our congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. No doubt, uh, an incredible experience, and um, you only wish uh, people we're talking about today um, uh, have have similar experiences. So, um, thank you again for your comments. Our first witness is the Right Honorable David Millibrand, uh, somebody we all respect, President and CEO of the International Rescue Committee. Mr. Millibrand previously had a distinguished political career in the UK, serving as Foreign Secretary. Thank you for being here. Our second witness today is Michel Gabadon. Thank you for being here, sir. President of Refugees International. Michelle spent more than 25 years at UNHCR. Thank you for bringing that knowledge with you today. Finally, our third witness is, uh, that we'll hear from today is Ms. Nancy Lindborg, President of the United States Institute of Peace. Someone who we also have seen many, many times, and thank her. Nancy has served at USAID and as president of Mercy Corps. Thank you for that service. Thank you all for being here. I know you all have been here many times. If you could each spend about five minutes um, giving your positions, we obviously will, without uh, objection, your written testimony will become a part of the record. And if you could just go down the line and give your testimony, we'd appreciate it. We look forward to questions and, and uh, certainly your comments. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I think you probably heard, but uh, I want to say thank you and that I'm honored to be here. Uh, I want to congratulate you on not just holding a hearing on the humanitarian situation uh, in the Middle East, but recognizing the links between the humanitarian situation and the geopolitical uh, situation. Uh, my organization, the International Rescue Committee, has, I think, a unique uh, perspective on the crisis because we're working in the conflict zones of Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. Uh, we're in the neighboring states, uh, that you referred to both uh, Senator Corker and Senator Cardin. Uh, we're in Greece, in the island of Lesbos, where half of the uh, refugees arriving in Europe are landing on European soil, and we're active in the United States, uh, resettling 10,000 refugees in 26 cities across uh, this country every year. Uh, the roiling conflicts in the Middle East, as both of you have said, present the most challenging, dangerous, and complex humanitarian uh, challenge in the world today. And I think they present a preeminent moral and geopolitical case for renewed American engagement. Uh, conscious of your time constraints uh, and uh, the benefit of a genuine dialogue in the question and answer session, I want to confine my remarks uh, to four areas that more or less follow my written testimony and focus less on uh, our analysis of the situation but what might be done. Uh, first, uh, inside Syria, uh, there is a war without law and there is misery without aid for the millions of people that you uh, referred to, uh, Senator. It's driving people to risk life and limb to get to Europe. And almost worse than the numbers you recited is that there is no structured political process at the moment to offer hope of an end to the war. Uh, the number one priority that we would present to the committee is to, t 
turn or help turn the words of UN resolutions, which are good words, supported by all members of the Security Council, uh, into actions that prevent death and destruction of civilians and their property by barrel bombs, car bombs, and mines. We advocate as a practical measure the appointment of humanitarian envoys by each of the permanent members of the Security Council, distinguished political or diplomatic figures who are able to work on the ground on the local access that is so essential to help the humanitarian aid that has been spoken of reach where it's needed. Second, the neighboring states, as you've both said, are coping with unprecedented numbers of refugees. It's worth noting that a World Food Program voucher is worth $13 a month for a family in Lebanon or Jordan, a middle-class family that's fled its home in Syria. Uh, for us, the priority must be, for these neighboring states, a multi-year strategic package that recognizes that these people are not going home soon, these refugees are not going home soon. In written testimony, we compare the package that's needed to the Marshall Plan, a multi-year plan which is not just an aid package, but aligns private sector effort with public sector effort and addresses the economic conditions that people face, not just the social conditions. Third, uh, I'm just back from Lesvos, the island in Greece where the uh, half of the refugees are arriving. Uh, I won't dwell on the responsibilities of uh, European leaders and European citizens. Suffice to say that they need to show both competence and compassion, both of which have been sorely lacking over the last few years. The three priorities in Europe are, first of all, to establish safe and legal routes to become a refugee in Europe. Without those safe and legal routes, you empower the smugglers, who are currently charging 1,200 euros for the six-kilometer boat trip across the Aegean. Secondly, to improve reception conditions, notably in Greece and on the routes into northern and western Europe. And thirdly, to implement a robust relocation plan within Europe to share uh, the refugees between the different European states. Just finally, it is worth pointing out that European aid for the neighboring states does now exceed American humanitarian aid. And with the 1 billion euros that was announced last week at the European summit, uh, that European lead, so to speak, which is currently $200 million, uh, will stretch uh, to $1.2 billion. Finally, uh, there is an important substantive and symbolic role for the United States in resettling refugees. IRC has been doing this for 80 years since Albert Einstein came to New York to found the organization in 1933. So far, just over 1,800 Syrians have been admitted. And with the greatest respect, the respect of someone who's a visitor to your country, even though I work here now, but not yet not a citizen, uh, I would say that this 1,800 figure is not fitting for the global leadership role that the United States has played over a very long period in refugee uh, resettlement. Uh, the, the administration's commitment to take 10,000 citizens remains a limited contribution to the global effort. And we recommend three practical uh, steps. One is to raise the ceiling the, the number of Syrians who are allowed in. And in the course of the question and answers, I hope we get to explain why the figure of 100,000 has been reached, the 100,000 refugees to be admitted over the next year, and how that uh, speaks to the global need. Uh, secondly, to fund that drive properly, including in the Department of Homeland Security, where we strongly support effective secu security screening and uh, can speak to that. And thirdly, and uh, something that has not had proper uh, coverage, I think, is the scope for expanding access through family reunification schemes uh, for Syrian-American communities who are in this country, across the country, and have uh, grandparents, cousins, 
relatives in Syria who want to come and uh, join them. This is a DNA-based family reunification scheme and I think could offer a practical and short-term way of circumventing some of the delays that have plagued the programme. So, Mr Chairman, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to speak with you. I deliberately curtailed my remarks and very much look forward to a, a real dialogue. Thank, Thank you very, very much. much. Mr Chairman, uh, Ranking Member uh, Cardin and distinguished members of the committee, thank you very much for holding this, uh, this hearing. And we certainly subscribe entirely to the way you have both framed the, the question of the Syrian crisis. Um, the chaos, distress and drama we have seen on our screens over the past months are nothing but a reminder that we have collectively failed to respond appropriately to the needs of the victims of the conflict in, in Syria over the past year, despite the tremendous amounts of funding that have been uh, provided. And I want to thank the U.S. for being a leader in uh, humanitarian funding to the Syrian crisis and certainly Congress for having made the right appropriations to core humanitarian accounts of this country. Uh, RI has undertaken 12 missions over the past few years in all the countries holding Syrian refugees and once inside uh, Syria. Uh, we have looked at how displacement has evolved, how the situation of refugees has changed over time, and unfortunately, how the funding has been uh, drying up. The drivers of displacement are multiple from the uh, actions of the Shia militias at the beginning. We all remember the images of Homs and Hama uh, to the development of a tremendous military operations by the uh, Assad regime, to the rise of extremist groups, but also to the tremendous deteriorating socio-economic situation in Syria, which makes life unsustainable for many people who had to cross outside to find some ways to sustain themselves. However, today, when you talk to refugees in southern Turkey, in Jordan, on what is the primary reason why they move, they all have the same answers. It is the barrel bombings over markets, over uh, schools, over medical facilities. Another NGO has reported that the months of August saw the largest number of medical personnel killed by these, uh, these uh, shellings and barrel bombs. The response to the crisis in neighboring countries has been, I must say, remarkable. We've seen very few crises in the world where borders have remained open for so long, where uh, governments have accepted the refugees spread out among the population. There are very few refugees in camps, most refugees are living in an urban setting, mixing with the local uh, population. Um, services have been ac uh, accessible to refugees, national services, uh, medical and school uh, uh, have been accessible uh, to refugees. And quite remarkably, in all the interviews we had with refugees, there is a rather low reporting of abuses by authorities. This is not something we experience in many places where refugees seem to be targeted much more than we have seen. And I think we all have to recognize that Turkey Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, and the Iraqi Kurdistan has done tremendous work in welcoming refugees. The international response has adjusted to the urban nature of the, the refugee situation. Uh, however, that urban nature creates some particular challenges because the impact of refugees on host communities is much stronger than when you have refugee camps, which are e easier to manage. And they, we are seeing now that there is some erosion of the tolerance of local population when they see their schools overburdened, access to medical facilities uh, being uh, dependent on very long queues, the price of rents for apartments or whatever they find where they can uh, live uh, going up and up and up, and even the price of basic uh, food commodities, etc., uh, going up. So there is an impact on, on the local population that after four years starts to generate reactions 
of rejections or at least tensions with, with the refugee community. Um, the humanitarian needs remain because many refugees are poor. What we've seen over time is uh, refugees being pushed from uh, poverty to misery. Uh, more begging is happening in, from Istanbul to Amman and on the border cities. Uh, there are uh, children working because as their parents are not uh, allowed to work, they do send their children to work. It's easier for children to work illegally than for, than for adults. We have seen a, a lowering of the age of early marriage for women, which is a way to, for families to try to get some, some funds, and we see an increase in what we call uh, sex for food, in, in basically uh, the trading of uh, uh, the young ladies to just be able to feed their family. All these are, are absolute the, the, the trappings of the pauperization of the refugee uh, population. Uh, there were not many indications that people wanted to move until the end of 2013. When we talk to people in the first years, they say, we go back to Syria as soon as we can. It's only at, at the end of 2013 that the mood started changing. In 2014, they mostly moved through Egypt and Libya, trying to get these smugglers' boats to Italy. Uh, with the sort of disasters we have seen, and tremendous amount of, uh, of risk for them, but the numbers remain sort of tolerable, perhaps compared to what we have seen in 2015, where smugglers moved their route uh, through Greece, probably making it much cheaper, and therefore uh, bringing a much higher number of people who wanted to leave. The poverty they have uh, suffered as their own resources were depleted over time was certainly a main factor. For many people, the lack of education for children is also uh, a motive for trying to move forward to, to, to Europe. But also, as I mentioned, the fact that their welcome is drying up. Governments now realize that they have a huge amount of people that are getting poorer and poorer and being like a dead ball, a lead ball on their own, on their own development. And, uh, and uh, local populations, as I say, are starting to react. And we had riots in, in different countries against uh, the refugees. Uh, that outflow will not stop because either the Europeans get their act together, which we hope they will, and then more people try to leave, or it stays as it is now, and we've seen that the difficulties they have faced to date have not really uh, staunched uh, the flow. So unless we go back to the root causes, which is how we address uh, the situation of refugees in first asylum countries, I think the regional instability will, will, will keep on. We have to look at increasing support to humanitarian funds. It is true that funds have been available over the years in larger quantities, but they have not kept up with the needs. And actually, what we've seen over the past years is the proportion of the UN appeals that have been funded has gone down, and key services like education, etc., have been actually cut. In Jordan, food rations have been cut by half in the, in the last few months. Uh, we have to maintain support to humanitarian needs, and we look certainly forward to uh, US leadership in this field. But we need to activate a much stronger response to the development needs of neighboring countries. Most of the challenges they face are, cannot be dealt by humanitarian agencies. They need development money, they need bilateral aid, but the key drivers of big development are the development banks. The High Commission has, has done due diligence in trying to approach the banks, but I think it's time to look at ways for the governing bodies of these banks to put uh, this sort of situation as part of their regular mandate. It's not just a question of humanitarian response, it's a question of guaranteeing the stability of the neighboring countries to Syria. And I think this is where, why we see now these host countries becoming extremely nervous. Resettlement is important because it offers an orderly 
way of uh, leaving the, the, the country. However, even with the highest number we can dream of, it's going to be a, uh, to touch a small percentage of the, of the refugees, and it cannot um, uh, leave us um, neglecting the needs on development in our humanitarian aid. And finally, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, we hear that there are some attempts to reinvigorate the peace process. Uh, we have always believed that there was no real military solution to the, uh, to, the, to the conflict and that some peace had to be negotiated. I think it's very important that the people who come to the negotiating table must make a much stronger commitment to protection of civilians and we must see a stop to the barrel bombings, etc. if we want to be able to talk to people that are going to be credible in the peace process by the refugees. If this does not happen, we will not see at any time any possibility of return. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, Ms. Lindor. Thank you. Uh, good morning, and thank you, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee. I know a number of you have traveled to the region, and I greatly appreciate your focus and attention to this escalating humanitarian crisis. And I testify before you today as President of the United States Institute of Peace, which was founded by Congress 30 years ago, specifically to, to look at how to prevent, how to mitigate, and recover from violent conflict. And we do so by working in conflict zones around the world uh, with practical solutions, research, and training. And there is clearly a deep connection between what we're seeing right now in the humanitarian crisis and conflict that has spun out of control and become uh, very, very violent throughout the region. Um, I agree wholeheartedly with both of my colleagues, and you, both of you have, I think, aptly described um, what is uh, a, a starkly terrible crisis, numbing statistics and heartbreaking stories. Uh, through the region, so let me use my time to, to look at four uh, recommendations that I would make as, as we look forward. And, and most importantly, even as we seek solutions for the crisis in Europe and the resettlement that both Michelle and David have talked about, I would urge that we use this moment to, to uh, expand our commitment uh, to providing assistance in the region and look at solutions ultimately in the, in the region, because if even if Europe and the U.S. take the most generous number po uh, of refugees possible, that will only scratch the surface of this crisis. Um, so first of all, is we, we absolutely must sustain and increase our collective commitments uh, to meeting the most immediate needs. As, as we've heard, uh, the number of uh, commitments have decreased uh, against the needs. Thank you to all of you for having supported a very generous U.S. commitment. It's about $4.5 billion to date since the Syrian crisis. But this is against a global backdrop of 60 million people currently forcibly displaced from their homes. Um, there is a global burden uh, that is stretching the humanitarian system, straining it to its limits. Uh, and we need to ensure that not only does the U.S. continue its, its commitment, but that we get a larger collection of, of countries to help shoulder that burden. It is consistently falls on a small number of countries. We need to expand that, that the number of people who are, the number of countries that are providing assistance. Um, secondly, we also need to ensure that that assistance is as effective and efficient as possible. Uh, we have seen, uh, as Senator Cardin noted, that we continue to treat the problem as if the refugees will go home when, in fact, there's a 17-year average 
duration of displacement. Um, we are often constrained by our institutional mandates, our structures, uh, and, our, and the stove piping from doing the kind of assistance that uh, enables refugees uh, not only to survive, but to look for some sort of sustainable future, uh, as well as providing support for the host communities who are heavily burdened by the, by the huge numbers that are among this. I, I've recently returned from Iraq where um, I met with uh, a number of civil society organizations and um, Kurdish officials in, in Iraqi Kurdistan, where one in five uh, among them are now displaced. They have uh, some three million uh, displaced Iraqis who fled ISIS over the last year. And there, despite a huge mobilization to provide assistance to these folks, they, their infrastructure simply can't cope. It's, you know, their water systems, electrical systems, schools, clinics. And so you have people who are sitting in camps, in containers, in uh, squatting apartments, uh, studies interrupted, no way to make a living, and they don't see a future for themselves. So a number of the Iraqis, displaced Iraqis with whom I spoke, yeah, they want to go to Europe because they do not see a future for themselves. And as one civil society activist told me, we have seven camps in Erbil, that's seven time bombs, as people are sitting here month after month, year after year, with no work and no education. This is something that we need to look seriously at, and it's far worse as you move into Lebanon and, and Jordan and Turkey in terms of uh, the burden, the stretch on their infrastructure. So our assistance needs to focus more on education, on employment, on the kind of trauma counseling that can help people recover, and on the helping the communities bear the burden um, more effectively as we ask them to continue hosting. Um, thirdly, we can start now to help people return. In, in certain places in Iraq, there are opportunities to return, but we need to ensure we're helping communities deal with what could become cycles of conflict because of the mistrust that now exists between communities in the wake of ISIS. And so by working with communities to have the kind of facilitated dialogue that, that builds bridges, that reduces tensions, and rebuilds social cohesion, we give people a better opportunity to return home without repeated cycles of conflict. Um, and then finally, I just, in, in addition to pushing hard on the kind of diplomatic solutions that get at the roots of the conflict in Syria, I would also urge us to look bro more broadly at how to increase our efforts to provide the kind of development assistance that focuses on those places that are most fragile whether they're weak, ineffective, or illegitimate in the eyes of their citizens, that are really the source of what is the, the flow of refugees, not just Syria and Iraq, but Afghanistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Somalia, places where you have a web of hopelessness born of conflict, oppression, and poverty. And by focusing more on those areas, we have a better chance of managing conflict. At USIP, we say conflict is inevitable, but how do you manage it so that it doesn't become violent, it doesn't end up pushing people out of their homes and into the kind of crises that we see today? I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you all very much for not only what you do, for, but for being here today. And with that, Senator Cardin has a conflict, so I'm going to, as a courtesy, let him ask questions first. See, the conflicts are all over, not just the... As long as you manage them. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate the, the courtesy. And 
Uh, let me thank all of our witnesses, not only for being here, but what, what you do to, to help uh, in regards to this humanitarian international challenge. The U.S. leadership is so desperately needed in multiple uh, strategies. Yes, in the geopolitical landscape to deal with resolving these conflicts so people can live safely in their homes. That's obviously where the United States uh, must put a great deal of attention. As has already been pointed out, a lot of these um, uh, refugees are going to be in border countries for a long time, and the cost is tremendous, not only the, the dollar cost, but as it affects the stability in that country. And there are international responsibilities. The United States must be in the leadership. And as I pointed out in my opening statement, we are significantly below what the United Nations indicates it needs uh, on, on the dollars. And then lastly, the resettlements. And I just want to talk a moment about that because there are 20 million refugees. We know 4 million are now from Syria. And most of these refugees are not returning home anytime soon. Some are not going to be able to return home. And our refugee policy numbers, caps, were based upon the philosophy that refugees would be returning to their host countries. That's not the, re the real world today. So for the United States to have a cap at 75,000 or 85,000 or 100,000, recognizing there are 20 million refugees worldwide, Many of those are not going to be able to return safely to their homes, many of whom want to resettle in a place where they can have a future for their family. They live 17 years and as, a, and as a refugee, on average, does not give you a future for your family. So I guess my first question, should we be reevaluating not just the United States, but also Europe, I understand, is changing some of their numbers on resettlements. But should we be looking at the 20 million differently and realistically determine how many of these are individuals need permanent um, uh, placements, particularly those who are recent and have, don't have roots in the border country, but really want to reestablish roots for their families. Should we be looking at these numbers more realistically today? Um, thank you, Senator. Let me just say three things um, in response to what I think is, is a really apposite question, because what we all face is that these 20 million refugees and 40 million internally displaced people, the 60 million that Nancy referred to, the central question is, is this a trend or is it a blip? Those numbers were a world record last year, more than any time since World War II. And my thesis to you is that this is a trend and not a blip. So your question is, is absolutely right. And I think three things are important. First of all, refugee resettlement is important for the substantive help that it offers for the sake of argument to the 100,000 people that you uh, mentioned. But it's also a symbolic value of standing with the countries that are bearing the greatest burden. No one can pretend that refugee resettlement into Europe or into the United States is going to quote-unquote solve the problem. It's not going to involve the majority of the refugees, but it's a symbolic as well as a substantive show of solidarity. Second critical point. The vast majority of refugees live in poor countries neighboring those that are in conflict. And uh, the Syria case is a, a prototype. And uh, local integration is going to be the solution, either because we acknowledge it and embrace it, or because it happens de facto. 
And I think what Michel Gabadon was saying is that we have to embrace this point that there are going to be the majority of refugees in neighboring states. And the question is, do they become economic contributors or are they simply seen as an economic drain? And just to amplify his point, he was saying that at the moment, the World Bank, by its mandate, isn't allowed to work in Lebanon and Jordan because they're considered to be middle-income countries. And in the new world that you're describing, it's got to be a central part of the World Bank's uh, modus operandi that fragile states, conflict states, where 43% of the world's extreme poor now live. I mean, that's the central challenge for the sustainable development goals that were embraced last week. It's got to be a central part of the philosophy of the World Bank that fragile states are its business. Frankly, and I, I hope my colleagues agree with me on this, it's also got to be a point of reflection for the NGO and humanitarian movement. We have to recognize that economic interventions need to sit alongside the traditional social interventions that we've done, not just health, education, protection of women and kids, but also economic livelihoods uh, programs. The third and final um, point is that already in the course of the 45 minutes we've been together, it's evident that the words humanitarian and the words development don't do justice to the policy problems that are faced here. And I would submit to you that the budget headings, such and such as humanitarian, such and such as development, don't do justice to the problem. And the institutions that we've got, some of them working on humanitarian crises, others on development, those, that separation doesn't do justice. Just to give you a figure, in the 20 biggest crises last year, $5.5 billion was spent on the so-called humanitarian intervention, and $28 billion was spent on development interventions. Now, the truth is they have to work together. And that is a major challenge to the international system, which I think it would be tremendously positive if the committee was able to engage with. Let me get uh, change gears just for one moment. The United Nations estimates that there's over 400,000 people inside Syria who are besieged that cannot be reached as far as humanitarian help. And they're saying there's another 4.8 that are hard to reach. Do we have a strategy for dealing with that vulnerable population that we cannot effectively um, establish through conventional means uh, help who are displaced within Syria? Well, the U.S. government was the leader in um, providing assistance that was going across borders, um, across the Turkish and Jordanian borders to reach those who could not be reached through the U.N. Damascus-based effort, and many courageous NGOs were very much a part of that. Um, that has been curtailed by the incursion of ISIS into some of those areas, although the, the work continues, and there continues to be extraordinarily courageous efforts to, to reach those folks. The barrel bombs are an, uh, equally a problem, as my colleagues have noted, and despite the provision of a UN security resolution, uh, that David mentioned, there is not a serious effort to provide civilian protection. So, so as we look at resolving this conflict, civilian protection has got to be chief among the, the goals that we collectively put in front of the international community. In the absence of that, people are just being pummeled uh, by both sides, by Assad's people and by ISIL, um, and that further curtails the ability to reach them with assistance, and even if you did, they are threatened with death. Thank you. Can, Thank I you. Just add, can I just add a, uh, sure. a short point on that? But the short answer to your question is no, there isn't a good strategy for reaching these besieged areas. The truth is those people are in a worse position today than when the UN Security Council resolutions were passed. And so 
uh, our proposal for the humanitarian envoys who will be on the ground trying to name, shame, negotiate, organize uh, the delivery of aid is at least one idea to try and break this terrible deadlock. Because at the moment, once a month, the UN, Security, uh, the UN Secretary General reports to the Security Council that medical aid is being taken off lorries and dumped. And there is no accountability for that kind of abuse of basic morality, never mind international humanitarian law. And so I think that your focus on this and your demand, uh, or the implicit demand, that this has to be at the absolute center of any basic uh, approach to the humanitarian situation in, in Syria is absolutely right. Well, there's no question that these, these vulnerables that we cannot reach or hard to reach are going to add to the numbers. They're going to add to the numbers of casualties. They're going to add to the numbers of people who try to, to exit Syria for a better life. It's going to add to the number of refugees. It's going to add to all the numbers we were talking about. It's just a matter of, of how quickly they can try to find a safe place or exit for their families, or they become casualties of the war. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Dr. Gabadon, I know there, I think people in our nation get confused. We allow about 70,000 refugees into our country right now each year. And I know the administration has talked about raising that to 85 and then to 100 over the next couple of years. And then there have been statements about, on top of that, adding 100,000 Syrians into our country immediately, not by the administration, but by, by others who are advocating for that. Just as a, uh, I know we have the chairman of the Homeland Security Committee here, but is there a way to actually screen and deal with that, or is that a number that really uh, is one that is not realistic relative to our ability to screen those coming in? Senator, in, in terms of the capacity, the U.S. has shown in the past that it can admit large numbers. You know, we saw that with Vietnam, we saw that with the Cuban, we saw that with, uh, with, uh, with the Kurds, etc. So there is capacity in this country. There is a question of resources, of course. Um, I think that the, the U.S. system has the most serious vetting system in the world. If you look at other countries who resettle refugees, they don't come half the way the U.S. does in vetting the people which it admits. The U.S. has also, uh, the U.S. resettlement program has a tremendous quality, which is it chooses people on the base of vulnerability, and that vulnerability is usually assessed at the beginning by the UN, who makes the initial submission to the US. When you start looking at people who suffered you know, torture, uh, women, female of household, et cetera, the sort of criteria the US uses, I think you already has, have a filter that is then uh, deepened by the work of Homeland Security. So I think there is, there is certainly the technique and the capacity. For Syrians, I do understand that it will take some time to reach the numbers, because I was told that the intel that the government has on the Syrians is not as good as the one it had on Iraqis, et cetera. So there are genuine difficulties that will have to be overcome. But uh, our experience over the past 40 years in dealing with resettlement is that this country has the capacity, has the experience, and, and has shown the willingness to do it when, when, when the conditions require it. Hang on, let me just... I know there's some discussions right now about us working with, with Russia um, as it relates to uh, Syria, and I just want to understand from your perspective, you're dealing with refugees, um, are they fleeing Assad's barrel bombs, or are they fleeing ISIS? I know they're fleeing both, but generally speaking, can you get at, for this discussion, uh, the greater root or the roots, if you will, of why people are fleeing the countries 
briefly, and then I want to follow on with additional questions, but go ahead, Walter. Let me just speak to the experience I had last week in Greece. Um, over the course of two or three days, I must have spoken to two or three hundred uh, uh, refugees, the, the majority of them Syrian. Uh, the, the answer to your question is it depends where in Syria that they're coming from. Uh, the majority that I met, they were from Aleppo, from Greater Damascus, or from Deir Azor, which is out in the east of the country. And it's a different situation in different parts of the country. But you, the point that you made, that they're, they're facing a pincer movement. On the one hand, they've got the barrel bombs of Assad, and then on the other hand, they've got the terror of ISIS. And it's almost that as they flee from the barrel bombs, they end up being driven into the hands of ISIS, and that's what's forcing them out. The particular circumstances in different parts of the country are, are obviously a, a matter of detail. But there is a, a wider significant point. 95% of the barrel bombing attacks that, and other uh, attacks that the Assad Air Force are uh, taking are undertaking are against uh, are not against um, ISIS targets, and so it's very very there, important. There, if I could, I mean, so people understand, these are just against civilian populations, right? And other rebel groups, and, and some of them are against other rebel fortifications because obviously there's Jabhat al-Nusra and other uh, groups. But um, it's it, it's certainly the case that a very small proportion of the bombing raids are targeted on ISIS. Does anybody differ or want to add to that? Well, I would just add, having been in Iraq last week, that it, it very much differs depending on the circumstances. And, for example, I met with a couple of Yazidi sisters who um, had recently escaped, having been sold to three different men. Um, they're now living in a container with another family, clearly dealing with enormous trauma. And they don't really have a sense of what their future is, and they have... Uh, no ability to imagine going home, um, that, which is true for a number of the minority populations that have been pushed out of their homes. In the absence of security guarantees, they're saying, we want to be resettled. We can't go back unless there's security. So that's one set of, of uh, specific issues. But I also met with a young Sunni woman who had been studying for her university exams when uh, ISIS swept through Mosul. She fled with her family. She's now living in a very crowded apartment. She hasn't been able to resume her studies. It's been over a year. She's just wondering what is her life likely to be. Yeah, yeah. And she also wants to go to Europe. So there are lots of reasons that people are desperate to, to envision a better life. Let, let me just ask this question. So if an effort, it's hard for me to contemplate this even, but if an effort were put in place to strengthen Assad, which is what Russia and Iran are pursuing right now. What effect would that have if we were somehow a part of that or winked in a nod and said that was okay? What would that do from your perspective based on what you're seeing on the ground relative to the refugee crisis? I think I can answer for you, but if you would answer for the record. Mr. Miliband. Um, I congratulate you on the precision of your question and um, leading a humanitarian organization, I'm going to have to be extremely precise uh, in my uh, answer. I mean, I think that um, from our point of view, uh, the violations of uh, international law and, and basic rights are coming from all sides, but the majority are coming from the Assad government. Uh, secondly, it's evident to anyone who reads the newspapers or follows um, the debate that significant actions by the Assad government 
have bolstered ISIS and have enabled the growth of ISIS. Um, thirdly, any diplomatic or political approach needs to address both sides of the coin if it is to have a chance of success. I would Thank just you. add that, as we've mentioned earlier, there is a tool, UN Security Council Resolution 2139, which was unanimously passed, uh, that has not been upheld by key actors in the region who are now making different moves. And so there is an urgent opportunity to uh, ask, push for key actors to take that seriously. That addresses the, the targeting of civilians, the barrel bombing, the withholding of humanitarian assistance. Mr. Gavin, I, don't, I know I'm running out of time myself. I would say I don't remember many UN Security Council resolutions that have been adhered to, and it seems that when they're not adhered to, we just change them to something that can be adhered to. So um, I'm sorry, I'm a skeptic, but uh, Mr. Gavinon, Dr. Gavinon. No, I, I fully subscribe to what David was saying regarding the, 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 the source of the, 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 the main drivers of, of Exodus. The, uh, of, co of course, there are changes. Kobani was clearly uh, driven by the ISIS offensive. But if you speak to refugees on the border, the majority will refer to the barrel bombing. This is the story we get on and on and on. And I'm talking about Syrian doctors who work for NGOs that, that have a 501c3. You know, these are people who understand where we come from, et cetera. I'm not talking about, you know, wild groups, et cetera. And um, my, my fear is that any attempt at peace that does not immediately have an impact over how in this case, the barrel bombing are being used against civilians, will go nowhere, will be completely discredited by the large majority of the Syrians we meet in neighboring countries. So if I could, unless the barrel bombing stops, the refugee crisis will continue to get worse. And just in closing, I apologize to my colleagues here. Are the Sunni, are the, any of the uh, Arab countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, some of those that are working to unseat Assad uh, in certain ways, are they taking any refugees at present? Um, they're, they're not signatories to the 1951 convention, so they don't recognize the status of refugees. If, if they were sitting here, they would say there are 500,000 Syrians living in Saudi Arabia and 120,000 Syrians living in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, some, of, uh, some of them have arrived recently, others have been there for a long time, but they're not, they, their status is not as refugees, their status is as, as migrant workers. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and thank you. Um, I'd like to thank our witnesses today, not, not just for being here today, but for what you're doing in the middle of a, of a huge crisis. Uh, we all empathize. Um, Mr. Milwin, I'd like to start with you. Um, you know, we, in, in 2011, the U.S. Uh, created a vacuum into which ISIS began to grow. They needed land to legitimize the caliphate. They've done that. Um, in the last few years, we've created a vacuum by not having a Syrian strategy, and, and, and now we just see in the last few weeks the formalization of, of uh, Russia's presence there with military troops and so forth. In the last five years especially, we've seen Iran and Russia supporting the Assad regime, which we've been talking about today. Um, my question is, is what complication does Russia now showing up with military presence, and um, do you have any perspective uh, being in the region? You talk about development and humanitarian um, help coming together. I'd like to know how this development and the lack of a U.S. strategy in the region complicates 
your ability to deal with the ongoing crisis. I have a follow-up, a couple of follow-up questions on that about uh, prevention. Thank you very much, Senator. And, and I should say that uh, every time the senators applaud the work of our organizations, it's, uh, it's very reinforcing for our staff who are out there in the field in really the most dangerous places doing extraordinary work. And I, I want to thank you very much for what you said, which I see as a tribute to their uh, work. I think that in respect of the, um, the, the complication, I think you said, that's been inserted by the Russian moves over the last uh, two or three weeks, um, I have to um, defer to those who are privy to the intelligence and to the military uh, option making uh, that's going on. As the leader of a humanitarian organization, what I have to keep on stressing is that all decisions, both military and political and uh, humanitarian, need to be made with the needs of the citizens uh, at the heart. Uh, what I would point to over the last five years is the extraordinary fragmentation and complexity that's been uh, that's developed both within Syria and in Iraq as well. And that complication makes it doubly difficult for us to do our uh, job. So the negotiation that's necessary to have local consent to deliver aid depends on engaging with a bewildering ar array of local actors whose power changes sometimes on a weekly um, uh, basis. Uh, the wider point about the Russian role in, uh, I think, has to be split into two parts. Until the passage of the UN Security Council resolutions, there was no cover for the cross-border work that uh, we, we and others were trying to do. Uh, and so the issue then was trying to get that cover. Since the passage of the resolutions, however, we haven't actually been able to do more work. We found our situation constrained in part by the position on the battlefield, but also by the lack of official uh, backing from those who supported the resolution. And I think that's why the emphasis um, that uh, Nancy has put on turning those words in that resolution into action, notwithstanding the, uh, uh, the history that the chairman referred to, remains very, very important because uh, those, the, the Security Council resolution is only as strong as the nation states who back it and their willingness to, to see it through. You know, yesterday, and I, I want to move this question now to Assad and, and uh, Putin's uh, relationship with Assad. Um, you know, yesterday he made a comment, uh, his, and I quote, refugees undoubtedly need our compassion and support, but the only way to solve the problem is to restore statehood where it has been destroyed, to strengthen the government institutions where they still exist. My question, and I'll start with Dr. Uh, Gabinon, can we solve this problem as long as Assad is barrel bombing his own people, targeting uh, open markets, targeting children? Uh, the question then before us is, uh, can we solve this? There are two levels of this. One is obviously the temporary or the, the immediate crisis, and then the long-term solution. As you said, uh, Mr. Millen, this is no longer a blip. It is a trend. If that trend is there, then going back to what uh, Senator Cardin mentioned earlier, we've got to develop a different strategy. This is not just about feeding people for a few weeks. It's about education. It's about training. So my question is, in trying to prevent this now, or at least getting at the immediate crisis, how should we look at Putin's comments relative to Assad and also what Iran's position has been over the last decade with, uh, with regard to uh, Bashar Assad. Well, I can only answer this from the perspective of what I heard from, from, from refugees and not from a politician yeah. or a strategist. Uh, so I, I hope you'll take my answer in this, in, the, in, this, in this context. I certainly think that if a, a negotiation uh, takes place with Assad and has to be credible with a large number of people who have fled the country, there should be an immediate stop 
to the deliberate attack against civilians. Any process that does not control that from, from day one will be doomed and will not lead anywhere in terms of uh, satisfying the, the population who have left the, this very violence. So I think now whether he's prepared to do that as a precondition for getting into peace uh, negotiations, I don't know, to be honest, and I'm, I'm not anywhere close to this uh, discussion. But I think it's essential that people who are going to be associated to a peace settlement have to make a commitment to stop immediately the sort of deliberate attack on, on civilians. I know that in the conflict there will always be casual, civilian casualties, you know, by, 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 by the very nature of the conflict, but the deliberate attacks on, on civilians is something that is far too uh, grievous to, 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 to sustain a peace process. You know, we've all traveled to the region. Um, Senator Gardner and I were just there this spring in Jordan. They're overwhelmed. They've basically, the, the parallel would be if the United States um, had accepted refugees that would be the size of England, for example. Um, they're overwhelmed. We see that. What I'm really concerned about long-term are the children. We talk about it being half the problem basically today. Um, Ms. Limbaugh, would you just speak to that and, and elaborate just a little bit more about what we can do in the immediate future and then what the, the long-term implications of that are? Because this looks like a breeding ground for dissent, and, and I totally understand that. Um, would you just speak to that and what we need to be doing now in order to prevent uh, further um, uh, exaggeration of this crisis in the future? Yes, abs you're absolutely right. I mean, there's an enormous population of children who are out of school, uh, both from the Syria crisis and Iraq and through the region, um, who are the next generation growing up without a future, without a sense that they have something positive to connect to. And so as we look regionally at this whole issue of how to counter violent extremism, while at the same time, we are not as a global community enabling these displaced kids to connect to education and something more positive in their lives, we are absolutely creating, as the activists in Iraq told me, you know, seven, seven hotspots, seven um, uh, time bombs. And so there was a very important effort launched uh, two years ago called No Lost Generation, which was an effort to gather focus across the humanitarian and development community on education and on enabling there to be fuller support for kids. <coughs> and one of the challenges that we have, and David spoke to this, is that we get trapped inside the differing mandates and stovepipes of the way in which we deliver humanitarian and development assistance. And so my hope is that this current crisis will really catalyze us to move further and faster on some of the more innovative ways that we know we can uh, uh, use to provide more appropriate assistance that gives people a chance to uh, have a living, to get the kind of help they need to recover from trauma, to get their kids educated. That is one of the most important things that would enable people to not uh, leave the region because they have um, a sense that only by going to Europe will they, or the United States, will they have a, a, an opportunity for those basic ways of, of having a more dignified life. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I, I might just point out the barrel bombs are being delivered by air. Um, I think everybody understands that. I, I can't imagine what these many refugees and people around the world are thinking about nations like the United States and others that know this is happening as we're sitting here in these nice circumstances and are continuing every day to allow that to happen, plus the torturing of people 
in his prisons, and yet we're going to the UN Security Council and talking about hollow, hollow resolutions. But anyway, Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for your testimony. And let me just briefly join the chorus of voices that have uh, recognized the International Rescue Committee. It's just, I've done work with them. It's extraordinary work and should be incredibly proud to lead them. Um, I, uh, as someone who comes from a community that were refugees to the United States, I have a very strong appreciation of the willingness of a country to accept those who are fleeing for whatever the reasons. So I'm a strong supporter of broadening our response. But I also understand that at the core of the problem, as Ms. Lindbergh said in her testimony, that the most generous contribution of the United States only scratches the surface. That at the end of the day, unless we get to the root causes, we are treating symptoms, but not the, the causes of, of what makes people flee from their home. And in this case, in the case of Syria, the ongoing conflict. Um, the barrel bombing, which unfortunately is in and of itself is a horrific act, uh, is also exacerbated by the use of chlorine gas in violation of international uh, standards, as well as my thought was that when this committee passed an authorization for the use of force to stop Assad's use of chemical weapons against his people, that we would be looking at a permanent stoppage of chemical weapons against his people. And while I certainly rejoice in the fact that we did do a lot to relieve the risk to the people of Syria by a variety of chemical weapons, we have not relieved them from the total risk at the end of the day. And so at some point, it is hollow if you don't follow through. So what uh, I wanted to get a sense here, first of all, is on your question, that the, on your statement, the most generous contribution of the United States scratches the surface, and maybe Mr. Miliband, you can help me with this too. In other countries, the numbers of refugees that are flowing into them, what would be roughly the percent vis-a-vis -vis the population of their countries that are taking place? Whoever can answer that for me. Well, I can say it's, it's one-fourth of the Jordanian population. Uh, in Iraqi Kurdistan, it's one-fifth of their population. These are unimaginable numbers uh, to have occurring in U.S. or Europe. 20 to 25 percent. 25 percent of the population in Jordan mm -hmm. is, Sir is a Syrian refugee right now. Uh, in, Le in Lebanon, sorry. Yeah. Uh, just to follow that, 85 percent of the world's refugees are in developing countries. So the European comparison would be Germany's agreed to take 500,000 refugees or accept 500,000 asylum claims over the next year and for the next, each of the next three years. That's in a population of 90 million. Uh, Italy, population of some 60 million, has taken uh, in each of the last two years 120,000 uh, refugees. Um, the UK, um, has, uh, Prime Minister has pledged that they'll take 4,000 a year in a population of 60 million. So you can see the variation there and the big gap between the neighboring states in the Middle East and the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the European countries. It's worth saying that the U.S. at its peak was taking about 180,000 uh, refugees a year in 1979, 80, 81, uh, when so-called Vietnamese boat people were arriving here in very large numbers. Mm -hmm. So with the administration's announcement that they will move up to 85,000, 
total refugees, that is not necessarily Syrian refugees. That would be about 2% of the American population. So I say that in the context of understanding the challenges of other countries here compared to what the United States uh, is, is, is looking at. And um, I say to myself in that regard, uh, you know, there is a, we are either going to choose to help countries where, in fact, uh, refugees are flooding to in the first instance uh, and to while we are, to be more robust about it. Or we have to think about what is a number that is acceptable here in the United States as part of an international commitment. But I want to go to the, to the core question, which is um, how do we uh, stop? I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong for the record, that none of you advocate that in order to stop the refugee crisis that we should accept uh, the, violation, the, via, the violators of uh, human rights uh, and core international principles as a way to solve that problem. Is that a fair statement? You're nodding. Can I just say yes or no for the record? Yes. yes. Okay. So if that is the reality, that means uh, in the case of Syria, moving away from Assad, even if it's in a transitional issue, but at the end of the day, moving away from Assad. And... Uh, I only see the circumstances getting worse, not better. Uh, we're doing nothing to stop the barrel bombing, including that with chlorine gas. Uh, we have Russia that is now sending all types of military hardware and creating an air base for itself in Syria. Uh, I see at the end of the day uh, that they have been a patron of Assad and will continue to be a patron from, of Assad until they see a solution that protects their interests at the end of the day. Uh, so in the interim, I see them using that force. Uh, and whatever entity they are using that force again, let's say ISIL for argument's sake, inevitably in a circumstance such as this, it will create more refugees. Uh, and, uh, and I see Iran that has continued to support Assad. So I don't see a lessening of the refugee crisis. There are still, as I understand it, millions displaced who have not become refugees. At some point, their displacement is going to lead them to be refugees. And when it leads them to be refugees, we're going to even have a more uh, significant crisis. So at the end of the day, uh, isn't our goal, while in the interim, certain doing everything we can for those who have sought refuge, to really uh, dedicate ourselves to ending the violence, stopping the barrel bombing, and getting a transition in Syria, because if we don't do that, there isn't enough space, time, money, to ultimately meet uh, the crisis of the lives of these people. Uh, Senator, I think you spoke very powerfully about uh, symptoms and causes, and you have to treat the causes as well as the symptoms, I think you're saying, and you're absolutely right. The, the way I would put it uh, for my own organization's work is that we can staunch the dying but it takes politics to stop the killing. And that's the fundamental challenge that we face. Now, staunching the dying is very, very important. I don't have to tell you that, and we could be doing much, much better. We could also be doing more than staunching the dying. We can be staunching the radicalization. We can be staunching the misery by much more effective work, both inside Syria and in the neighboring states. But if your question is, are there true limits to the effectiveness or the impact of humanitarian work in the absence 
of peacemaking of a serious kind, then the answer has to be unequivocally yes. And until we stop the killing, we're not going to be able to be doing justice to the people on the ground or to the values that we all stand for. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Chairman. And Ms. Lindbergh, I have a couple of questions for you. You mentioned uh, Security Council resolutions, and I think it was uh, in 2014, a couple of security resolutions passed, Resolution 2139 in February 2014. I think you mentioned uh, 2139, uh, which demanded that parties promptly allow rapid, safe, and unhindered humanitarian access. And then uh, Resolution 2165, which is basically called upon notification, not consent for uh, delivery of, of humanitarian aid. You mentioned that not all countries are, 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 are violations are being reported on all sides. Could you go into that a little bit more uh, in terms of 2139 particularly? Well, I, I think as David mentioned, there is a monthly report on progress uh, and there is a, a, a routine where lack of progress is reported and there, and there isn't any teeth in the resolution uh, to do anything about it. Uh, and hence, Senator Corker, your skepticism. There was, you know, there isn't a Chapter 7 provision because there isn't agreement among the Security Council members. And for a number of years, there was a bit of a charade where there was not even uh, full belief by all the Security Council members that we had a humanitarian crisis going on inside of Syria. I think what is going on globally today makes that a very difficult case for people to still make, for countries to still make, that we don't have a humanitarian crisis of truly epic proportions. And uh, it, it does provide one tool for forcing the conversation and forcing the agreement that the killing is at the root of the crisis. In terms of 2139, what, what ought we be pushing with the United Nations right now in terms of uh, perhaps uh, an amendment or? Sorry. Enforcement, 2139, in terms of uh, what we should be pursuing. There's nothing that we there's can... There's no enforcement built into the current resolution. The, the, it, was, it was a hard-fought effort to get the passage of in it the way it was, and it is without teeth. Okay. Um, you, you talked a little bit about, uh, in response to the chairman's question, a little bit about uh, barrel bombing and ISIS and the, and the pincer movement that, Mr. Millibund, you, you described. Uh, what would change if the... The refugee crisis, what would change with the refugee crisis if barrel bombing were to be stopped? How would that change the refugee situation? Well, it would certainly, de it would certainly decrease the deaths. Uh, as we've heard, the, the targeting is often of, of medical personnel, of clinics, of markets. I mean, we've seen the utter destruction of cities like Aleppo. Uh, people are fleeing. Uh, often because their their lives are just literally in shambles and and their loved ones killed there there is still obviously the threat of ISIS and of other armed groups it's it's a very chaotic situation and yet in pockets there are efforts to still maintain a life and there are efforts to still have local administration in parts of Syria and so I would add that we also uh, need to continue and redouble our efforts to support those who are on the ground, who are seeking to create some some sort of ongoing stable uh, lives for their communities. Mr. Milben, would you like to talk about that in terms of putting an end to the to the barrel bombing? What that would do? Well, Senator, I think as our efforts continue, obviously with ISIS and others. Yeah, I, I think that um, there are two ways of looking at it. One is obviously on the more political side and. Um, that's something that you'll be thinking about as you 
contemplate your, your views about the ultimate resolution of the conflict, but there's no question that the position on the battlefield it, it, it creates traction uh, on the wider diplomatic and political front, and I leave that uh, to you. On the humanitarian front, the, the, there's no question that the daily, hourly abuse of international humanitarian law has created what someone said to me, uh, Aleppo is hell, and I had to escape from hell. And it's as blunt as that. Um, frankly, we've had our own um, uh, people who were uh, not actually our staff, but were um, benefiting from our services, um, uh, go home, we lost seven of them, barrel bombed. Now, uh, this is a daily reality for people who are, to, to pick up something that the chairman said at the beginning, are giving up hope. And at the moment, they see their chance as putting their fate in the hands of smugglers and criminals who say they'll get them to Europe as offering them more than staying in their own homeland, in their own uh, country. And that is obviously an indictment of the global response uh, over the five years of the, of the conflict. I'm intrigued by Ms. Lindbergh. Uh, in your testimony, you stated, uh, even if Europe and the United States collectively take the most generous number of people possible, it will only scratch the surface of the crisis now stretching across a swath of fragile and conflict-torn Middle Eastern and African countries. Uh, and that's what I make sure that, as we continue this conversation, that, that we're providing the most effective uh, support possible because uh, humanitarian aid is not going to, uh, excuse me, refugee aid, the United States, Europe, isn't going to solve the, the problem alone. We've got to get to the bottom of uh, the barrel bombing and the continued drivers of this, uh, uh, this conflict because uh, we can open up as much as we want, uh, but the crisis will still exist and we've got to have a better strategy than we have right now. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses for your work and your testimony. Um, just to explore, the, the, the UN Security Council resolution, what it called for, but the absence of teeth to enforce it has been incredibly disappointing. And I know everybody worked hard to get it passed in February of 2014. Originally, that wasn't easy. Uh, the fact that it was brought up during the middle of the Winter Olympics in Russia probably made it a little bit harder for them to throw the uh, veto in as they have in the past with the eyes of the world on them during that Olympics, but it's been very discouraging that work hasn't happened. Uh, Senator McCain was probably the first in this body, beginning really in the fall of 13, to start to talk about the notion of the no, a no-fly zone, a humanitarian safe zone, some use of military force to create safe space, and then most likely in the north of Syria near the Turkish border, where people could go if they were fleeing Bashar al-Assad, ISIL, cholera, hunger, they could go and with the thought that the creation of that zone and the protection of it with military force would allow the cross-border delivery of aid under circumstances where the aid workers and others wouldn't be jeopardized. I was originally not a fan of that proposal, but by probably February of 2014, I came to his way of thinking, seeing the numbers dramatically increase my first visit to Turkey was at a time when there's about 750,000 Syrian refugees in Turkey in the summer of 2013, and now it's two million. Other countries are seeing the same thing, and now we're seeing it spread not only through neighboring nations, but throughout Europe. It's not easy. I'm assuming that there, there are, I assume that there's a whole lot of challenges in doing that. Um, but, but to me, it just seems like if we don't go upstream and, stri and try to create some safe area, um, with a, an additional, you know, nearly 8 million displaced people within Syria, 
that the crisis is going to continue. And even if we wave a magic wand and we say the U.S. will take 10 times the number of refugees that we've said we would take, it's still a drop in the bucket to compare to the challenge that is likely to come. So am, am I wrong? I mean, is that, a, is that a strategy that's the wrong way to go about it? Um, I, 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 I'm not sure you'd get a majority of votes in this body for it. I think, you know, the vote that we had about using military force against the use of chemical weapons against civilians barely got a majority on this committee, and it was likely not going to get a majority in the Senate. It certainly wasn't going to get a majority in the House. Still, if the administration were to advocate strongly for it, there is, bi there is some bipartisan support for the notion. But as folks who do this work, am I looking at this wrong? Senator Kane, uh, I, I have long wrestled with this question uh, through this crisis. Um, you know, the, the history of, of safe zones and no-fly zones in, for humanitarian purposes is fraught with uh, cases where it didn't work well and it's filled with moral hazard. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I think that as the crisis progresses, and the level of killing continues um, that is prompting this level of crisis for us to continue to not take some action that is forthrightly about civilian protection um, creates enormous uh, uh, tragedy for the people of, of Syria and is not at all consistent with who we are as a, as a country. And it seems to me that as we did in places like Kosovo, that it warrants a very, very hard look at with our allies uh, or maybe through concerted diplomacy with other actors who now claim to be uh, uh, interested in, in putting solutions on the table that we look very closely at, at, at how to provide civilian protection. What is the best way of doing it and have that be the joint concerted goal um, of, of our actions and, and look at what the military means might be required for a no-fly zone or, or a security area. Other thoughts? Yeah. I'd say two things, uh, Senator, about this. First of all, I think it would be very welcome if the debate about no-fly zones moved from slogans to details, because the details really matter. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, I think NGOs like ours can offer the benefit of experience of different ways in which governments around the world have tried to uh, deliver so-called safe mm -hmm. areas and, mm -hmm. or, or no-fly zones because we've suffered from the details being got wrong. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that immediately you, you see that a safe area which is designed to protect some people in some part of the country immediately creates the moral hazard that Nancy referred to, because for us, barrel bombing any part of the country of Syria is, is, is an affront, not just in parts of it. Uh, but that only is to make the point that, obviously, the debate about safe areas engages other questions than merely civilian protection. The proposal for safe zones, uh, most recently in the Armed Services Committee last week, was for reasons beyond the humanitarian. And that's why I think that our best contribution is to advise on the humanitarian impact of different models of military and other action to protect civilians. And on that basis, I think we can, we, we've got something to say without taking away from you the ultimate judgment that you have to ma make about uh, who to put at risk and, uh, and in what ways. But, but clearly, uh, we, we, we're all in a position here where the existence of a UN resolution that calls for cross-border delivery of aid without the consent of the Syrian government and the stopping of border bombing, that that resolution now, you know, a year and a half old with zero enforcement of it, I mean, the the impotence of that and the message that sends about 
the impotence of the international institutions and the unwillingness of the nations that are members of those institutions to do anything to back up their words, that's incredibly destructive, not only in this circumstance, but more generally. Wouldn't you agree with that? Is, is there a, le I don't know the legal precedent on this, and maybe this is the wrong panel to ask this, but is there a legal precedent for, mo for a group of nations taking action to enforce a UN Security Council resolution that the UN has, is unwilling to enforce? Well, the closest uh, precedent would be the Kosovo yeah. experience, uh, where obviously there wasn't a UN Security Council resolution, and the um, US administration at the time decided not to uh, put a vote at the UN because it didn't mm -hmm. want a Russian veto, mm -hmm. but the action took place. Um, the, the, I can't think of an immediate precedent of the kind that you um, uh, describe. Um, uh, and looking back on that, on that action, what, what is the humanitarian sort of NGO's conclusion about that in retrospect? Was that a good thing to do or not? Well, having been with an NGO at the time, mm -hmm. I think there was uh, widespread concern that Kosovo was undergoing uh, the beginnings of, of mass atrocities, mm -hmm. and that without the campaign, uh, there would have been terrible, terrible loss of life in Kosovo. And with some mixed feelings, uh, there was uh, um, gratitude that action was taken that saved so many lives. Mm -hmm. So action that was taken to save lives in an ethnic cleansing situation, a huge atrocity, even without a predicate, of a UN Security Council resolution calling precisely for delivery of aid into this area. You know, I mean, I know you can make mistakes and there's risks, there's mixed feelings about it, but the general sense was gratitude that the actions were taken. What, what projections have your organizations done? I'm about done, but what projections have your organizations done about the likely pace of continued um, migration out of Syria over the next year or two if sort of status quo continues? Um, just, just to finish off on your previous question, of course, the other relevant example would be the Rwandan genocide in the um, earlier in the 90s than mm -hmm. Kosovo, about which people have very strong opinions. Mm -hmm. um, our project projections never... And, and on that, just was there a Security Council resolution but no international action was taken or it was taken... In, Horribly late, so that the you know the slaughter was at just you know dramatic levels before anybody did anything. I wanted to go back to your first question, Senator, yeah. which is projections on outflow. I don't yeah. think we have numbers in mind, but certainly the people who are leaving now are people with a certain level of education and who have the resource to pay the smugglers and and all the the cost Ma of that. Many do that not. is going to dry off, and yeah. what, is, what the people are staying in Turkey, in Lebanon, in Jordan, etc., are those who are getting to the levels of absolute misery. Mm -hmm. And I think these are those we have to, to, yeah. to, to retain in our mind. Sorry, I didn't answer your question. I mean, we didn't make any, none of our projections included a scenario where the German government would say that uh, three weeks ago anyone from Syria can claim asylum in Germany. Right. And so um, the truth is, what, what projections have we done? They need to be revised in a very substantial uh, way. Now, I think it's only uh, fair to the committee to say, both within, from within Syria and from within the neighboring countries, there's been a significant uptick in the last uh, month or two months of people leaving, including 
uh, people who are staff members and others. There's uh, mm -hmm. uh, undoubtedly um, uh, there's not just a pincer movement inside um, Syria. There's also a pincer movement yeah. in that people from Syria and from the neighbours are leaving. And so I think that we have to. Uh, the, the second piece of evidence that I think is very significant is that the number of people who we anticipate crossing the Aegean during winter, uh, we anticipate to be quite high. I, I, I was told when I was in Lesbos that the UN are actually project, projecting 20,000 people to cross the Aegean in December, which would be uh, unheard of. Mm -hmm. And obviously the dangers of hypothermia and other health hazards are, are, are very large. I think if, if where you're going with your question is, do we have to prepare for very, very, very significant numbers leaving Syria and leaving the neighbours in the next uh, year, the answer would be yes. And obviously, um, what's happening in Europe at the moment shows the difficulty of playing catch-up on this. Because Europe has had its eye on the Euro crisis, it's had its eye on the Ukraine crisis, it hasn't had its eye on the refugee crisis, and now desperately trying to play catch-up means that it's, it's in a very, very much weaker position. And that is, so, so there's a warning there about what might happen in the next year. I've, I've gone over my time, so thanks, Mr. Chairman. If I could, before turning to Senator Risch, just to clear something up, you mentioned, uh, Senator Kane mentioned the ethnic cleansing that was taking place in Kosovo. Uh, for what purpose is Assad barrel bombing civilian populations and clinics and others? It, 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 it's not a military strategy there. So, so for what purpose would he be barrel bombing his own citizens? The, 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 I'd be interested in my two colleagues. I think there are only two um, ways of seeing this. One is obviously as an assertion of strength and a display of strength. And secondly, is that the, um, he, he is engaged in using air power, the only force, um, uh, the only belligerent, Syrian belligerent with uh, air power, to uh, attack some of the um, rebel groups. And he's not taking any care as to where the um, mortars land. Senator Risch. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, you know, when you, when you look at this, uh, this is a pretty depressing situation because uh, the solutions that are on the table, as I understand the U.S. policy, is that, number one, uh, the policy is to return people back to where they came from. That's the, the first objective. That doesn't work. Number two, that they be keep kept safely in the areas where they're housed. And only thirdly, do you look at resettlement? Well, if you look at those policies, you wonder if that really works under the present situation. I think the description of this is epic. Uh, certainly, is uh, uh, an understatement, probably. But these people that now uh, have. The number is about 20 million, as I understand it, uh, worldwide. Is that uh, a fair number that you work with? If you talk about 20 million people who have left uh, their homeland, and, uh, and essentially people who maybe wouldn't have left under normal circumstances, but now have been forced out. And once they've been forced out and they see what the rest of the world is like, they aren't inclined to go back. Uh, as is the number one policy, supposedly, uh, that we have of seeing that they return to their homeland. So when you're talking about 20 million people, I mean, that, that number is just is staggering. And uh, uh, what, what troubles me is, after this has happened, uh, and, and people have watched this uh, w w with the internet that we have now and the communications that we have now, what, what's going to continue to happen in the future to people who, who look at this migration that has taken place 
and have said, well, you know, I'm tired of living where I am. This isn't good here. I'm going to move on. And even though they're not forced out, uh, that they are going to make that move. And uh, Ms. Lindbergh, as you noted, the woman that you talked to said, look, there's only two places to go, the United States and, and Europe. I mean, this is, uh, this is a, a challenge of, of staggering proportions. What we have now, which most people don't realize, but I think what's coming in the future uh, when people see that this migration takes place, and you can do it, and you can be, uh, become a citizen uh, of another country by simply picking, uh, packing up and moving. Um, how, how do you see this playing out? I mean, this is a... Uh, uh, th this is a uh, uh, a problem that uh, that that looks to me like it's going to just overwhelm the planet. Anybody well, want to take a run at that? <laughs> yeah, well, you, it, it, actually, and, and just to make you more depressed, I think the, the relevant number is 60 million, uh, which is the number of people who are forcibly displaced right now. 20 as refugees, the rest as displaced within their own countries. And I, you but know, probably we, subject to the same thought process I just went through. Exactly. It, absolutely. You know, we're, we've left our home. Why stop here when we can we can move on to? Uh, so, so I, I I think we've talked a lot about some of the urgent, uh, shorter term solutions that one might employ in, in in dealing with the roots of the Syria conflict, which is this raw, bleeding conflict that is driving a lot of people uh, through the region. I I would put a couple of other considerations on the table. One is that in Iraq, where there is movement right now to clear Daesh, we have the urgent opportunity to help people return where they are able to and where they would like to. And USIP has been working with communities on the ground in places like Tikrit that are cleared of Daesh, but in order for people to go home, they really you really need to work on a concerted dialogue process that gets rid of the mistrust and rebuilds the social cohesion so they can go home and live side by side with neighbors who might be different from themselves. And as we look at investing in our military action in Iraq, we need to ensure that we are commensurately investing in all of those solutions that do enable people to go home so they don't join that migration uh, that you've talked about. Even longer term, I would note that um, among the Syrians who are going to, to Europe these days, and among the 20 or 60 million, almost everybody is from a country that one would term as fragile. You know, weak, ineffective, or, and or illegitimate in the eyes of its citizens. And these are the countries that have the billion people who are living in, in poverty. Uh, they are the ones that have that mixture of oppression, of, of violent conflict and poverty that are driving people to seek better lives. Longer term, we collectively need to refocus how we think about development programs, moving development, humanitarian assistance to work hand in hand with, with security and, and diplomacy. Uh, we've just had new sustainable development goals passed in New York this week where there was the historic inclusion of something called Goal 16, which basically calls for inclusive democratic societies with, with accountable justice for all, which sounds very Pollyannish, but every nation has signed off on this. And it gives us, it, it gives us a platform for insisting that 
we not continue to have these kinds of bleeding sores around the world that create these kind of humanitarian crises and uh, keep so many people in, in misery and poverty? Can I just briefly address, um, I think, a very important point that Senator Rich has made, which is to understand the distinction between uh, someone who's fleeing for economic reasons and someone who's fleeing for reasons of political persecution, which is what defines a, a refugee. Um, it's a world on the move, and there are 200 million people moving around the world for economic reasons. And I think one of the lessons of this crisis is that it's very, very important indeed to maintain the integrity of the status of a refugee, someone who has a well-founded fear of persecution. And the erosion of that status uh, has damaging uh, implications for the politics of this issue, and it has damaging implications for the policy of this issue. The truth is, it's harder to reach America as a refugee than any other way short of swimming across the Atlantic. The checks, the vetting, etc., are far, far tougher to arrive in the United States as a refugee than under any other visa or other regime. And in a way, you can understand that because there are rights associated with refugee status that are earned. That if you have a well-founded fear of persecution, that you have rights and the state has obligations to you. And uh, I think it's important that we don't allow that status to be undermined because when it becomes part of a simple migration debate, and in honest truth, that's what's happened in Europe, a lot of the problems in Europe are for the confusion of the migration debate with the refugee debate, then it's very, very hard to hold the public, never mind to run the policy. Interesting. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Before I turn to Senator Markey, just to put things in context, I, our staff looked up the numbers relative to the Yugoslav war of a decade, and there were 140,000 people that were killed and 4 million people uh, displaced. So if you look at the scale, this one causes that to pale, and yet, again, no real action relative to the barrel bombing. So, Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Secretary Miliband, I have been and remain a skeptic of policy recommendations that increase the risk of Americanization or Westernization of the armed conflicts in Iraq and Syria. And I would much rather see us work to influence parties towards internal compromises necessary to end violence and work together to establish governments that fully represent and fairly treat all people. Most recently, we have heard that U.S. policy may be moving towards creation of so-called safe zones long advocated by Turkey. Just last week, retired General Petraeus called for us to create quote, enclaves in Syria protected by coalition air power where a moderate Sunni force could be supported and where additional forces could be trained internally. Displaced persons could find refuge and the Syrian opposition could organize. But on September 16th, here in the Foreign Relations Committee, we heard testimony from Michael Bowers of Mercy Corps, who told us that such zones cannot be considered safe. I have been advised that there are three requirements for true, effective, humanitarian safe zones. One, parties to the armed conflict must agree to the creation of the zone and to respect it. Two, the zone must be secured by an impartial force with sufficient capability and size, and it is critical that this force not be a party to the conflict or a supporter of any party to the conflict. Three, 
the zone must be demilitarized, meaning that it must not be a base for any military activity or operations by parties to the conflict, and this must be rigorously enforced by the impartial security force. In August, the UN Special Envoy for Syria, Stefan de Mistura, completed a round of consultations that the UN Security Council has endorsed. Secretary Miliband, could you provide your perspective on how the P5 and the entire international community can focus diplomatic support for his efforts? More specifically, how might such a process create true humanitarian safe zones in Syria that meet the criteria I just mentioned? Uh, thank you, Senator. I'd say two things. First of all, uh, your um, skepticism about military engagement is widely shared, and um, I know that you've, uh, however, not been a skeptic about engagement internationally generally. And I think the greater the skepticism about the military side, the greater the responsibility to act on the humanitarian and the uh, political. Uh, secondly, um, I said earlier that I thought that in the debate about uh, safe zones, no fly zones, it was important to move from slogans to details, which is what you've done, and also learn the lessons of history because um, all of us, actually my colleagues here with far more personal experience than me, um, can speak to the different ways in which different um, uh, tactics for the establishment of safe zones have worked or have not worked. Um, where I can comment, uh, and uh, the, the well-known example of the Kurds in 1991 who were protected versus the Srebrenica example, in a way one of my frustrations is that we've got to go beyond just using those two uh, examples as clubs with which to beat uh, the argument. Uh, we need to get right uh, underneath the details because the truth, to my mind, is that the situation in Syria and Iraq at the moment is unlike anything else that we've seen before, and we, we need to learn from uh, history but not be imprisoned by it. Um, you asked about the um, diplomatic and, and political um, engagement. I said in my opening statement that it is extraordinary to look not just at the numbers of people affected by this crisis, but the absence of political engagement either from the great powers or from the uh, regional powers on the political uh, front. Um, the uh, the Stefan de Mistura mission is, does not have the active, ongoing, engaged backing on a day-to-day -day basis of the nations who voted for the establishment of his office. And that contrasts with the situation in the Balkans where there were successive contact groups and other uh, formations of the P5, the Permanent Members of the Security Council, and others to try to put political and diplomatic muscle behind the attempts. Now, the, uh, many times those attempts failed to, rec to, to resolve the Balkan uh, crisis, but nonetheless there was the, the effort. And I think that uh, I would argue for as inclusive a process uh, as possible because that reflects the realities on the ground and for a process as structured and urgent as possible, uh, secondly. And thirdly, for a process that doesn't leave the humanitarian situation last. Because often in these um, diplomatic, um, I don't like to say games, but diplomatic uh, enterprises, the humanitarian situation is seen as an add-on. Whereas, to my mind, it may well be that the humanitarian situation provides the way in for a contact group rather than the conclusion of a contact group. And it's in that light that I suggested that this notion of humanitarian envoys appointed by the P5 um, heads of state, uh, but also by the regional powers, to start with some what should be um, unbreakable rules. And uh, that seems to me to be at least a plausible hypothesis about a way an international effort could be geared. 
If I could just underscore two points, um, I, I would first of all emphasize that now that this crisis has reached the shores of Europe, it, it, it does catalyze a renewed focus. And the humanitarian crisis is an important way in. It is now the leading edge of this crisis as it presents globally. Um, and secondly, it's very dangerous to conflate military approaches with civilian protection. And any approach that conflates those goals, I think, is, very, is, is, is a perilous way forward. You agree more with the three-point program that I laid out. Do you, do you each agree with that? That's a better approach? I, I, yes, although I would fully subscribe to David's uh, uh, advice that we, that we have a detailed conversation based no, and on I particulars. I appreciate but, yes. but in principle, the sanctuary for the refugees can't also be the military base. Correct. To Correct. You all agree with that. So I think that's a contrast with General Petraeus, and I think it's important for us to you know, put that out here on the table because that's, I think, central to uh, this issue. And I, <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, I wanted to ask an additional question about Yemen, but sure, I can wait. Is that all right? I would, uh, just out of curiosity, since we yep. um, understand your point of view, and I think uh, David Miliband does too, are you saying, on the other hand, that you would support U.S. intervention to stop the barrel bombing if it was not about military activity taking place within that safe zone, but uh, protection of civilians? Are you asking? No, I'm asking you that. I just had a curiosity. I, I just heard y'all. Um, because that'd be a breakthrough. I think the breakthrough, honestly, has to be Obama and um, Yeltsin, I mean, Obama and Putin sitting down and reaching an agreement on this, okay? And I think that's the only way it's gonna happen. I think any other intervention is not gonna be effective in the long run. I think we need a political resolution of this, and we need everything on the table, and we need the major powers to get this back out of the Cold War framework, which it's back into. So that's my view, to, <coughs> and it's the only way. Yemen, thank you. Okay, Yemen. And, I, just, and I apologize. Just for the record, uh, Mr. Chairman, before I get or my organization gets signed up to propose. No, no, can I say this? You did not answer, okay? Yeah. You're saying, Mike. I just wanted to say that Nancy's point about details really matters. So let's just take the example of a demilitarized zone. A demilitarized zone in an area, in a country, which is flooded with arms of all kinds, is a nice aspiration, but doesn't speak to the detail of the situation on the ground. And I would suggest that the imperative is to look at what a detailed proposal actually is and then measure it against the situation on the ground and the objectives that are set for it. Because in the end, it's the application of the principles that's going to matter. And frankly, the devil is in the detail. And my goodness, we've seen that in the last few years in Syria. Thank you. Thank you. And just quickly, Ms. Limbaugh, looking back to last winter and spring, it seems that we were on autopilot to reflexively support a Saudi decision to intervene in Yemen without a full examination of alternatives. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? What do we need to do to assess what we might have done differently last winter and spring, particularly diplomatically in the run-up to outside military intervention in Yemen? Well, I, I, would, I would answer it this way. Um, we're seeing where the military intervention is preventing humanitarian assistance from reaching populations that were very, very vulnerable to begin with. And we are already seeing the beginning of pockets of famine 
in Yemen. And if there isn't an ability to provide assistance on a more regular basis, including the ability of ships to dock, because Yemen is deeply dependent upon imports of fuel and, and critical food supplies, um, it's also running critically short of water, as we know. Uh, there will be massive widespread famine, and it will, uh, I, I think there's an important conversation to be had with both Saudi and Iran as to whether their military objectives are worth that kind of broad spread humanitarian So what can we crisis. do to help to de-escalate the violence so we can get the humanitarian aid into those who need it? What would you recommend that we do? What's the policy? I would, I would increase the, the, the pressure to, at a minimum, create a regular uh, cycle of humanitarian pauses so that there can be um, a regularized ability to get assistance in, including uh, ships that can get in and regularly offload and onload. There's clearly a need for the, the bigger diplomatic resolution of the conflict, but in the absence of that, there needs to be a way to keep the country from tipping into famine. Okay, thank you. And, and Mr. Chairman, uh, uh, Secretary um, Miliband was the leading voice in Great Britain on climate change, and I know how he knows how it interacts with uh, food and water crises that then further exacerbates all these problems, but I know my time has run out, but I just wanted to thank you publicly for all the work you've done in your career, Mr. Secretary. you have any additional comments? Well, I want to thank, uh, thank you and uh, thank all three of you for your testimony, for the service that you provide to so many people around the world. Um, we, uh, certainly the world would be a very different place if you and the organizations you represent weren't doing the things that you're doing. So we thank you very much for your testimony. We appreciate uh, the honest assessment you've given us on topics maybe outside of what you actually came here to necessarily talk about. It's much appreciated. And if you would, uh, there'll be additional questions, I, I know, and comments from other. Uh, I would say to the committee, if we could have those in by close of business by Thursday, and if you could respond fairly quickly, uh, we would appreciate that. But again, thank you for your service. Thank you for helping us understand the magnitude and some of the details relative to the problem. And with that, uh, this meeting is adjourned. Thank you.